numerous miracles that are here in our church and individuals that have have been touched and healed and uh, had the Lord work in their lives and it's a miracle they're here and we have miracles that have passed on just and yet uh, ways that God worked extraordinarily in their lives from uh, if I begin starting to name names as so many of our saints that have had tremendous amount of miracles and as I already mentioned brother Don Pretmore is here today and others and uh, we're thankful that all of you are here and I tonight they're going to have kind of a celebration service <clears throat> looking and thinking and uh, talking about what God has done and yet I, I realize that, you know, we don't serve God for the miracles. You, you cannot, you know, God is not a, um, a machine that you go to and put your money in and choose the drink you want or the item you want and punch the button and get it. And it just uh, immediately always works that way but hopefully we have developed a relationship with God and we have a connection with God that's real and that is a part of who we are. And so I, uh, this week, uh, when uh, uh, Thursday morning, I uh, uh, took uh, my wife and our grandchildren and we got up early and we drove up to Amish country and um, uh, we were, uh, you know, uh, riding and of course, you know, you see horse and buggies and different things. And so um, I, I re was reminded of having, when we've been preaching and teaching about David and reading in 1 Samuel, uh, about a story that involves Jonathan. And I put having a heart for God and a study in Jonathan's life. And I know Jonathan uh, did not become the next king. He was in fact killed and uh, his, uh, yet he was connected to David. And I uh, was uh, uh, thinking about all those verses and I saw a horse and buggy and uh, numerous horses and buggies. And um, yet I asked Siobhan, I said, aren't you glad we're in a horseless carriage? And she looked at me because she didn't know really what a horseless carriage was. And uh, I don't know if any of you've heard that term, but in the late 1800s, when uh, they were just discovering before really uh, Ford and, and uh, cars and uh, Honda and uh, all the other vehicles that come about, <coughs> they had what they called these vehicles that were, they called them horseless carriages. And in fact, they looked like a carriage, had big wheels, had uh, uh, one little stick in the middle had sort of a carriage seat. Uh, later, they, you know, they got roofs and uh, then they put windshields and as they went faster, they got all kinds of wonderful things. And in the last 120 years, most of you came in a horseless carriage today. 
Amen? And some of you may have had 350 horses in your team. Some of you may have had, you know, a different amount of horses. And we call that still today horsepower. And it's measured, uh, you know, now uh, digitally to figure out, well, how much uh, power is in your vehicle. And yet we still use the phrase horsepower. This is so many horsepower, 325, whatever the number is. And so uh, I, I was thinking about the difference between external motivation and internal motivation. Because external motivation is that sense of you are being pulled or dragged or, you know, it's um, uh, being forced along. And I know uh, I have a couple of uh, grandchildren that occasionally, very rarely, but occasionally will get in it with each other, you know, conflict. And most of the time, uh, there's some external motivation that has to intervene at that moment. Okay, be quiet. Look, stop. You need to tell your sister. Are you listening to me? Anybody? You know, I am... I don't know what I will do when the day comes when they do that on themselves. <laughs> when one turns to the other and says, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm acting like a real jerk right now. Please forgive me. <clears throat> I will probably call my wife and say, miracle morning. They're not in here, so it's okay. I can talk about them. Don't anybody tell them what I said. But most of us deal with this external motivation, you know. And, and a lot of times, unfortunately, it's a, a, a deep desire to avoid something, you know, can be a, a great external motivation. You can go to the doctor and he says, okay, if you don't change your eating habits or your exercise or your whatever, fill in the blank, then you're going to die or you're not going to live. And that's an amazing external motivation. We, you know, pain, uh, fear, uh, loneliness, isolation, uh, whatever it might be. And uh, unfortunately, just like New Year's resolutions, there's this short burst of momentum. And, you know, when I walk out of the doctor's office, I uh, get online and I buy weights and I buy a running outfit and I buy all of the stuff. And in two weeks, it's sitting in my closet. Because I don't yet have an internal motivation. You know, it's external only. And, you know, um, it's sort of, uh, it can be good. Hopefully it can turn into uh, something long term. But it's often erratic. It's often short lived. The word that we would use for that is we react. We react to whatever is happening. You know, whatever has happened, then I have a reaction. And yet, that's an external motivation. In 
internal motivation, the internal combustion engine is very different in that it is sort of the best motivation. It is, uh, it, but it requires us to take ownership of our actions and behaviors and thinking because it's mine. I, I have to take care of it. I'm the one. I'm responsible. I'm the guy. It's up to me now. And to recognize that I have a responsibility for much of what I do and say and how I view my life. And it's a, the word I would put there is responding to circumstances as opposed to reacting that I am now internally motivated. And I know immediately in our thinking, we could say, well, the Old Testament was, the Old Covenant was all sorts of external motivators. You know, the Bible tells in the Old Testament, children, honor your parents, honor your mother and father. Now, it goes on to say this is, a, uh, your days will be long, etc. But there was also a law, we never, we have no record that it was ever acted upon, but there's a, uh, a law that said if they didn't, parents had the authority to bring them before you know, uh, sort of the magistrate of those days, the leaders, and say, my son is rebellious, my daughter won't obey. And they went to a rock party and they stoned him. Whoa. That's a big external motivator. And don't look so aghast, parents, because if you don't get to your And I've heard parents even say things over the top. I'm going to kill you. Now, that's not a good external motivator, but I've heard that being used, unfortunately. I'm going to murder you. Go play in the freeway. I'm going to knock you into next week. When, I, when you wake up, you're going to not know what month it is. Whatever, you know. It's not the best motivator. It's external, uh, but typically some sort of consequence, something that we say, okay, this is it. We're trying to uh, work on, uh, you know, getting something internally into them. Now, I, I realize that even though the Old Testament is about external motivation, uh, there were a lot of of, of verses and a lot of stories that dealt with the heart, even in the Old Testament, that dealt with the internal motivation, even before the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. As a matter of fact, whenever Moses was taking an offering, the first offering to build the tabernacle, you know what, how he described it? He said, take you from uh, and among you an offering unto the Lord, whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring an offering, and he goes through gold and so forth and so on and so forth, all the things. So in other words, they did not demand that you bring all of that, but there was a willingness to see if it was in their heart. Of course, having to do with giving, that came into the New Testament when you look at the same sort of... of uh, what slide are we on? Uh, we're 2 Corinthians. I think you've... 
Is it on there? Okay. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 9 chapter says, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. He that soweth uh, bountifully shall reap bountifully. Every man according as he purposed in his heart. So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so I, I realize that, that uh, this sort of uh, understanding of, of uh, you know, letting it come from the heart. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah, the 31st chapter and the 23rd verse, it says, But this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, saith the Lord. After these days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their heart and in their inward parts and write it on their hearts, their law, their inward parts, write it on their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. So the whole purpose of the infilling of the Holy Ghost was to put something in inside of us that would motivate me from the inside out. This is why, you know, we tell folks, you know, you need to stay full of the Holy Ghost, stay full of the Spirit of the Lord, stay full of, of that because that's where the best motivation comes from. It's not, you know, I know some of you are here because mom and dad and you know, if I, you know, if mom didn't wake me up and if dad didn't say you got to go to church, well, I wouldn't go. <laughs> and yet at some point, that's got to become internal. Just like sort of everything else, you know. Um, hopefully mom's still not, you know, telling you to brush your teeth if you're 50 years old. Um, hopefully there's an internal motivation. Huh? And yet, which is why even in the Old Testament, Solomon was so clear to say, guard your heart or keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. So he was basically saying, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Because if your heart is motivated by the wrong stuff, you'll get off track. What's your motivation? And typically, you know, the two extremes, most of us have been hurt. Anybody? I don't want to ask you to raise your hand. Most of us have had things happen in our lives that hurt us, that offend us, that challenge us, that didn't let us have a good, squishy, warm feeling, whether it's in your childhood or whether it's in your adulthood or whether it's with relationships or whether it's with job or you, you fill in the blank, whatever it is. And we have a tendency to do a couple of things. One is that we wall off our heart so that nothing can hurt me or impact me and I become very isolated and I can become very lethargic. I can become, you know, it's just I, I, I'm not motivated to do anything. I'm not motivated. I don't have any reason. I'm just, you know, kind of bidding my time. I, I'm guarding my heart. I have it totally walled off. 
off and I'm not going to let anybody in or, or whatever that case might be. That's one extreme. Or, you know, I, I am going to wall it off and ignore any pain and become driven by something external. I'm going to make, I'm going to achieve. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to have be a millionaire by the time I'm 40. I'm going to have this. I'm going to have that. And it's some external motivation that I'm going to be driven for. And I, I, I can't, I'm going to have this goal. This is my goal. This is my external motivator. That's going to get me up every morning and I'm going to produce. I'm going to produce. I'm going to, I'm going to go through. And, I, and yet my heart is still walled off. And that's why a lot of times very successful people don't have successful relationships. Because their heart, they're driven. But their heart is walled off. You, you see what I'm saying? And so when you look at neither of those extremes, neither of those responses are really what God is interested in. God wants us to develop a heart for him. God is asking us, will you give me, will you become, and that's why he talked about David being a man after God's own heart, and yet I understand that, you know, this, I'm going to talk about Jonathan, and, and yet they talked about David being a man who had a heart for God. He had a heart for God, and that's what God wants to develop within any, all of us, is that we genuinely have a heart for him. Now you say, well, how do I do that? Well, that's how you get rooted, and we've talked about that. But I was reading, and I found this story about Jonathan and his heart. And it wasn't necessarily a heart for God, but it was a story found in 1 Samuel, the 13th chapter. And many of you may remember the story. And I, uh, it starts in the 13th chapter, sort of winds down in the 14th chapter of 1 Samuel. If you've never read it, you really ought to, ought to go and read it and study it because it's a, it's a pretty amazing story. But what happens is Saul has been anointed king and he's king now for a couple of years. And he decides that he is going to fight the Philistines. Now the Philistines were sort of, had been running rampant over the land and they had taken, uh, you know, most of uh, all the weapons and so forth out of the land so that they would not, there would not be an uprising. They removed all, you know, the, the, the guns and no, were no guns, swords and shields and spears and all the weapons. And so they, uh, had the people under their thumbs. So Saul gathered together a bunch of men and he went down and attacked a garrison of the Philistines near Gibeah where his hometown was. And he defeated them. And it was a great victory. And so then he decides that he's going to develop this standing army, even though they don't have a lot of weapons. And so he, he chooses out 3,000 men and then he gives Jonathan a thousand men and uh, uh, he sends everybody else home. And he goes down and attacks this garrison of a few, uh, less than a hundred Philistines. 
So he's got an overwhelming 4,000-man army, and they attack and win. And that's uh, not really miraculous, would you say? It's uh, just kind of, you know, 4,000 guys coming to attack a little outpost of, uh, you know, 30 or 40. Uh, great, wonderful, great victory. And he kicked a sleeping dog, so to speak. Remember? Uh, it was like the Philistines got real incensed about this. And they gathered a big army, like 30,000 chariots, according to the Bible, 6,000 men that took care of just the horses that went with those chariots, and according to the Bible, in 1 Samuel the 13th chapter, an army like the sand of the seashore. A huge group of people. And they came marching to the other end of this valley, about two and a half, three miles from where Saul and his 4,000 men were. And here's this huge army. And Saul and the guys on the lookouts see this huge army. And guess what their response is? Oh, no. And the Bible says they ran and hid behind rocks and bushes and they fled. 4,000 guys, you know, said, uh, by the way, uh, thanks. We had a great time on that other little journey, but now it, this is real and we don't want this. And, you know, 3,000 and... Uh, 400 of them left. And Saul is left with about 600 people. And there he goes around and he counts how many swords or spears or shields do we have? And there were two. He had a set and Jonathan had a set. And they start trying to you know, make swords and, you know, take their farm equipment and beat it and get it going. And so when you turn at the end of the 13th chapter, 14th chapter, Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree and just the way the Bible describes him, you would guess that he's extremely depressed. As you would be looking at 30,000 chariots, a huge army, and now you're down to 600 men. And he is demoralized. He has no plan of action. He has no word from God. He hasn't heard anything. And this is where Saul immediately pulls the trigger because his guys are leaving and decides that he's going to offer sacrifice instead of waiting on Samuel. He sent for Samuel. Samuel hasn't responded. And so, in this meantime, Jonathan has his armor bearer and he says to the armor bearer, come, let us go to the garrison that's on the other side. Let's go fight the Philistines. And he didn't tell his father. He was internally motivated by something. I, I don't 
the Bible is not clear what his internal motivation was, but his inter whether it was that he felt like God should give him the victory, whether he felt like internally that I'm out here to fight, I'm ready to go fight, I've got a sword, I'm ready to go, you know, kill something. Whatever his motivation was, was he said, let's go. And, you know, here's Saul under this pomegranate tree and he's waiting, trying to hear something he doesn't want to commit. And, and so here he goes. And um, the Bible says uh, that there were... Uh, um, the people that were with him were about 600 men, 1 Samuel 14, and Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, and Ichabod's brother, and the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli. So there's a high priest there, and the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. So he was in there worshiping God, and the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages, or in this narrow valley, by which Jonathan sought to go over the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. He was between a rock and a hard place. And the name of one was Bozes, which means a white rock. The name of the other was Sinna, which means a thorny place. And over against Michmash, and the other southward against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, this is what, what blows my mind. Come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. It may be. Maybe the Lord will help us. And then he quoted a promise. He didn't have total faith, but he had something on the inside that could grab hold of a promise. And here's what it was. There is no restraint to the Lord to save, whether by many or by few. <laughs> I'm not sure he's going to help us, but one thing I do know is he is able to save with just a few. I can't tell you he's going to work with us. And all of a sudden, the armor bearer saw that Jonathan's motivation was a promise from God. Jonathan wasn't there. He didn't say, come, let's go. We could be heroes today wasn't about him being a hero. He didn't say, come on, let's go. They'll sing songs about us. Wasn't about singing songs. It was about, I have a promise and I'm holding on to that promise. And I have this word. And as long as I have a word that God is able God is able. I don't know if he will, but God is able. God is able. And he got, he said, and the armor bearer, notice what his armor bearer said to him. Do all that is in thy heart.
Turn thee. Behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. He didn't say, do what is in your mind because my mind tells me this is stupid. This isn't going to work. There's no way. There's many men as on the seashore up there. Huh? But there's a promise in Jonathan's heart that God is able to say whether it's with many or with few. And so then Jonathan comes up with this idea. And, and, and when you read the idea, it's almost like you're like this. What kind of plan is this? Jonathan said, well, we're going to climb the mountain and we're going to show them. I, I mean, it wasn't even let's hide. We're going to walk out and let them know we're here. We're not going to try to sneak up on them. I mean, my plan would have been sneak up, kill one. Kill another one. Grab their swords. Kill it. Huh? Jonathan says, we're going to discover ourselves unto them. If they say unto you, tarry until we come. Notice what. He said, if they say, stay there, we're coming down to get you, well, then we'll just stay right here. Well, that's a great plan. <laughs> the next part of the plan is, if they say, come on up, we're waiting on you. Guess what we're going to do? Go on up. And then he makes this declaration if they say, go on up, then we know that the Lord has delivered them into our hand. Amen. Wow. And I, I, I read that story and I read it again because I'm like, that plan is not go down in my books as the ultimate plan. I would think of a whole better plan. You know, let's sneak in, you know, let's pick them off one by one. But there was this promise that the Lord is able to save. The Lord is able to save. He doesn't require me to be sneaky. He doesn't require. And guess what happens? You remember the story? They walk up the hill, they start climbing on their hands and knees, they get to the top, and what do the Philistines do? Say, come on up! <laughs> we're going to show you something. <laughs> when you get up here, we're going to show you a few things. Well, wow! <laughs> and... They walk up and hands and knees, that's not even a, a good fighting position. You know, if we're going to fight and you're down crawling around on your hands and knees, that's not the best 
You know, you want to stand, you want to take a blow. So he's crawling on his hands and knees, and he's killing them. And then those that he kills, knocks out, and then the armor bearer kills, so they're killing them back to back. And do you know what happens when they go through this whole fight? And the Bible describes that 20 men and a half acre of land were killed. It was like when they got through killing these 20, the whole earth began to shake. And the field and the garrison and the spoilers and the earthquake, and there was this great trembling, and the Philistines start killing one another and running as fast as they can to get out of there, and the Lord gave Jonathan this great victory. Now, what, what was it about, you know, Jonathan, that his armor bearer had faith in Jonathan's heart, and his response to the enemy was not in his thinking, but was that Jonathan was this. He, he was a humble man. He was secure. He was courageous. He was healthy. He, he, he was faithful, because you would say that he had a healthy heart. When your heart is not healthy, then you have no internal motivation. <laughs> when it's, when your heart, and I know the Bible talks about our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked and who can know it. And then yet in this hour, God needs us to have a heart for him. Why? Because our emotions are constantly under attack. And this normal process of, of developing a healthy heart, it requires maturity. And that's what ultimately where you move from, you know, you've got to start with this total dependence on God. And I mentioned David had that when he went out into the field and was a shepherd. A total dependence and relationship with God. And then there was the this sense of independence where I can do it regardless of whether anybody else is around me or not. I'm able to live for God, serve God. The final growth of a healthy heart is when you and I mentioned it about David, the cave of Abdullam, where you become interdependent. Now you start letting folks in and you start worrying about, and that's what makes a healthy church, what makes a healthy, you know, sure, you can be, you can say, I'm gonna do my own thing, I come, I don't do, I'm not gonna get involved, I'm not, but Jonathan had a healthy heart. He was, not only was he able to be independent, he didn't need to tell his dad about what he was planning on doing. He, he, was, he was, had a, a relationship somehow with God that he knew his word enough to say, God is able to save whether by many or whether by few. And yet he, was, he had this such a healthy heart that he had this sense of independence. And then he knew hey, the rest of the people, they don't have swords, they don't have spirits. If anybody ought to do something, I guess it's me and dad, and dad's under a tree and he's depressed. So it's on me now. And I'm going to take my armor bearer. And when he said this with conviction, the armor bearer said, do what is in your heart, I'm with you. 
And he used that phrase, do what is in your heart. What are you saying <laughs> this year? I know. Uh, this growth process of, you know, developing an inward heart. And I realize Staples came out with it a few years ago. I don't have one. Maybe you do. It was our whole campaign, you remember? The easy button. And we have a whole society that likes the easy button. And part of that is why I like a car and not riding in a horse and buggy. A horse and buggy is real hard. You gotta feed the horse, take care of the horse, hook the horse up, can't go very fast. And so we have a culture that's driven by an easy button. If it's difficult, if it's costly, if it's inconvenient, if it requires me to do something, uh, and I, I'm not against it, I understand it. I like to go through the drive-through at McDonald's, especially if it's cold. I like to just drive up to the window. Huh? I don't know who it was, the first coffee shop somewhere, it would be a miracle if they could have patented drive-up windows. I mean, now, it's not my favorite, but you know, I just order it from Amazon. I don't even have to get out of the house. I can order my groceries. I can have, order from Kroger. I can, huh? I know none of y'all have ever done that. Click it. Send somebody else by to pick it up. Just double click on the side of my phone and it's paid for. Click, click. And we think that that's the way God is. But developing a relationship with God is work. Salvation, easy. Getting baptized, easy. <laughs> Living for God. Sanctification. <laughs> a process. <laughs> Getting rooted. A process. Oh, hallelujah. Justification. Boom. Like that. You're justified immediately, but sanctified? You work through that. Fear, trembling, oh God, what are you talking about? Oh, I, I, my heart, why, what are you doing? I'm trying to develop a, a way to have an inward motivation in this hour. Why? Because there's so much stuff that's out there. I can get bitter. I can get offended. I can have pride, anger, disappointment, unbelief, insecurity. Oh, all that can get in your heart. All that, all that, the, you know, the love of money, you name it, whatever's there. It's all growing in us. You've heard me talk about the last several weeks about weeds and how they grow up and they choke out everything in their root system. Why? Why? Because all of these are based in some kind of fear. A fear of failure. A fear of rejection. 
a fear of not being accepted, a fear of being alone, a fear of not being taken care of, a fear of being less than somebody else, a fear of not being loved, a fear of loss, because that's where our society is. That's in our heart, folks. And yet, what does the Bible say? Herein is love made perfect, not that we, and we have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Romans 5 and 5 says, Hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. What are you talking about? That in this hour, the Lord is working on our hearts. I know this is not awesome. Let's, you know, it's some external and I, I'm, I'm thankful for the miracles and I appreciate the God that does the miracles, but God is also the greatest miracle is that he's working on my heart. And he's trying to get me internally motivated. And it's not something external. You know, I've been bitter, I've been offended, I don't like the way I was treated. You know what? Get another dose of the Holy Ghost and let his love help you to forgive and move on and say, Lord, I want to be a man after your heart. I want to be a woman that has a heart for God. I want to grab hold of a promise and not let go regardless of what I'm going through, regardless of what's happening around me, I, regardless of what the odds are. I want to be able to say, God is able. God is able. God is able. You say, well, you don't understand. I've been disappointed. I, I've had loss. I've had things that I've lost, things that have happened. I'm disappointed. I'm so thankful for the love of God that is the comforter, the presence of Almighty God that is able to restore. As a matter of fact, one writer said, he is able to give back the years that the canker worm and the palmer worm have eaten. He is able to restore and redeem and set free. What are you talking about? I'm talking about getting my heart right so that I can grab hold of a promise and say, Lord, you're able to renew. You're able to replenish. You're able, Lord. Oh, I, I don't feel secure. I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm able, yet I understand his love brings acceptance. His love brings worthiness, confidence, God esteem or God worth. You know, I've had people that have said, I just don't, I feel inadequate. Grab hold of the love of God. Grab hold of the love of God. Let the Lord show you he loves you. Well, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. Oh, I know. People have done me wrong. You've offended me. You've made me mad. I can hang on to that. Let those weeds grow in my heart. Yes. Or I can grab hold of a promise. Yes. He's going to bring me peace. You're able, Lord. Whether 
you use me or somebody else, I'm going to do my best just to love you. I'm going to pull all that out. Why? Because it's going to choke out the fruit of the Spirit, the, the love, the joy. Huh? When I don't clean out the soil of my soul, it chokes out anything kindness, love, mercy, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. Do they see that in me? Or do they say angry, frustrated, but I was wrong. I know. I get it. I, I know. It's a hard weed to root out. And there's all kind of places in the Bible where, you know, the disciples said, hey, Simon, you got the wrong motive. Jesus said, hey, you got the wrong motive. Hey, there's something in your heart. It's not pure. What are you talking about? You know, and I, I'm, I'm through, but that's why the Lord would say, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, strength. Once you do that, then genuinely you can love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because by this you're going to be known as my disciples. By you coming to church three times a week. By paying your tithes. It's a whole other subject I'll talk about another time. Truthfully, the Lord is not interested in your 10%. He wants 100%. Yes, yes. Oh, are you preaching a new tithing system? No. Hang on. Don't swallow your teeth. He gives us 90%. Yeah. If we truly have a heart for God, you're all in. Good to have David and Caitlin back. And I, I would tell you, there would be serious marital issues if either one of them said to the other, I'm going to be a great husband, great wife, love you, 340 days a year. The next 25, I kind of get to do whatever I want. said two days a week I'll be a great husband and wife huh and yet how much do I give him every day I want to hear his word I want to grab a problem what, what are you doing pastor I, I'm trying to get a heart for God because in this hour I want to have a heart for the presence of the Lord, I want to be all in. This is not just, oh, you know. I, I dare say that their marriage would have difficulty if they came up with 364. Give me one day that I can just... Are you sure? 
let's think about this. I'm going to give God one hour, one moment, one. Oh, well, that's you. You're a preacher. No, he wants all of us to be all in and to get an internal motivation. I want to live for him. I want to serve him. Oh, let's stand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In fact, let's come. Hallelujah. Let's just worship the Lord for a moment. Hallelujah, Lord. Give me an internal motivation. Get rid of all the stuff that's in my heart that would keep me.